0: That being said, uh, part three today of Unpacking, I'm going to invite our student reader up today. Do we have a student reader? Addie, right? Yes, Addie's going to come up and she is going to read to us from John chapter 6, 66 through 69. If you will, will you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? Grab my Bible here, read with you. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Thank you. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all his word. Okay, so we're three weeks in now, so you know that the goal of this series is to do something I think is incredibly important. It's to help us to think back, to reflect on the faith journey that we've all been on in life, and we've all been on a faith journey. Along that faith journey, we pick up faith baggage, if you will. Some of it's really good. Some of it's really necessary. Some of it helps us uh, survive and thrive. Some of it's not so good, though. Some of it can be quite heavy and traumatic, and it weighs us down over time. And eventually we just want to unload it. So this series, my hope is to help you unload that in a healthy way. Uh, So basically I've seen lots of uh, sermons given, lots of books written that help people move from a place of doubt into faith. I've seen far less written and given though that help people who feel like they're sliding out of faith into doubt. And for many of us, we go through seasons of life like that. For some of you, you're just wired like this. I'm wired like this. So it helps to have some strategies that can orient you when you feel like you're on the slippery slope. That's this series. And uh, if, if that's you... And you're just now joining us. This, this sermon will be great. You got to go back and listen to the first two sermons of the series, though, because it'll help orient you to, to where we're at. They're foundational. Uh, or if that's someone in your life, maybe you're not a deconstructor, doubter, skeptic, whatever, but you got somebody in your life, a, an adult kid, a sibling, uh, you know, a, a spouse, whoever, a friend gosh, get get this series in their hands or listen to this together with them because I think it'll help cultivate some really healthy and helpful conversations. Now, today's sermon is gonna be a bit different than the previous two. Today, we're actually gonna walk through five Bible stories or five biblical case studies, I'm calling them, of God talking back. Did you know that there are many examples in scripture of biblical heroes, they're canonized as heroes, who doubt God or who question God, or who wrestle with God, and then God talks back. Have you ever been in a moment where you're like, God, why won't you answer me? Well, sometimes, according to scripture, God does. We're gonna look at five case studies on that today. Here's what I think you're gonna find. Um, First, I think you're gonna find that God wants to speak into your doubt, but when he does, he doesn't always use the tone that you would expect. Sometimes he can be quite sweet and gracious. Sometimes he can be very direct. He doesn't always answer the questions that you want answered. In fact, sometimes he asks his own questions. Or sometimes he gives his own answers that have nothing to do with what you desire or what you were thinking of in your moment of doubt. Here's what else I think you'll find, though. I think you'll find that in all of these answers God gives when he talks back, there's a theme, a connecting theme, and I want to unveil that to you because I think it might help you today in the midst of your doubt. Now, along the way, as we look at this sort of unifying theme, I'm also going to give you a few deconstruction tips, healthy deconstruction tips. If, if you're somebody who's a doubter or a skeptic by nature, I think these stories will help you with that. And, of course, we're going to answer, I think, three questions from the youths. I don't know. Did somebody come up with a song? Have you guys been working on this? Somebody come up with a ditty for this because this segment's not going away, but we're going to get to some questions from the youths um, and we'll get there in due time. All right, let's get to the case studies. Five case studies. Here we go. Case study number one. We're going to start with Job. Job, the blameless and the upright one. Now, if you know anything about Job's story, you know that it actually creates a lot of questions. There's like questions about sovereignty and suffering, questions about Satan, God, the heavenly council and all that. how all that interacts together. And that is outside of the scope of the sermon today, but it's fun to think about. What I do want to look at though specifically is how God answers Job when he hits rock bottom in his deconstruction. Now, in order to, to get there though, we've got to kind of retrace the story. So I've made a little bulleted list for you that, sure summarizes Job up. First, the story begins in chapter one when Satan unexpectedly shows up at the heavenly court. It's interesting. Verse seven actually implies God's surprise to see him. He's like, oh, well, 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 look who came to visit today. Then before Satan, God begins to celebrate Job with very exalted language. He's like, this is a blameless guy. He is upright. He fears the Lord. Well, when God celebrates Job, Satan then attacks He attacks Job's character. He attacks God's character. And this is what he claims is interesting. He claims that no one worships God for God's sake alone, but only to either appease his anger or receive his blessing, which by the way is kind of true. This is how Satan deals. He deals in partial truths, right? It's what makes him so deceptive. It's kind of true. Most religious people, Worship God for either the old get out of hell free card, right? To appease his anger or to receive blessing in this life. And in both of those cases, who's the real object of worship? Not God, but you. So it's kind of true. We've got a deceitful, cunning Satan here. Now, uh, back to our list. When Satan throws this down, spiritual warfare then commences, it's a war to validate both God's character and Job's. Now, what's sad is as you read the book, Satan destroys Job's life. But what's incredible is after this roller coaster journey, pretty tough go at it, eventually both God and Job are vindicated in an incredible story. Now, what's amazing to track as you read through the story, though, is the progression of Job's doubts, questions, and confusion. Uh, At first, in the first chapter, uh, Satan destroys Job's home and his family, which would be enough to undo just about everyone in this room. But Job somehow remains strong. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know if this theology is is quite perfect. I have a couple problems with it, but I think what God honors about it is that Job in this moment is still reverent before him despite all the suffering around him. However, Job does not keep his emotional composure as his life continues to unravel. In fact, he becomes more and more accusatory of God um, until eventually he snaps. His friends don't help by the way. He's got these friends who come and they show up and they sit with him during his grief, which is beautiful by the way. If you have friends who will sit with you in your grief, that is a beautiful gift from God. But what they say when they're sitting with Job in his grief just makes matters a hundred times worse. And so Job eventually just kind of goes off the deep end and in Job chapter 30, he lashes out at God. I cry to you, O God but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You've become cruel towards me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. Now, at this point, Job's theology has gone completely off the rails. And who could blame him? In fact, in this verse itself, he accuses God of being both indifferent and cruel. So God talks back. God speaks into Job's confusion, pain, and doubt. And as you'll see here in a moment, when he does, he doesn't talk very nice. He's true. He loves Job, but this is not nice. It's not like, okay, sweet Job, come here, buddy. No, God doesn't enable his bad theology. He doesn't affirm Job's emotional outburst. And what's interesting is he doesn't answer the questions that Job asks. Rather, he gives Job his own questions to consider. Pick up in Job 38. You ever wonder what God might say to you in your doubt? Well, here's one example of what he might say. Verse one, says, "'Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. "'Who is this that questions my wisdom "'with such ignorant words?' Brace yourself like a man. Or I love the KJV translation of it. Does anybody know what it says? It says, gird your loins like a man. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, high schoolers. <laughs> I don't, but anyways. Uh, so it's brace yourself like a man, God says, because I got some questions for you and you must answer them. "'Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? "'Tell me if you know so much. "'Who determined its dimensions "'and stretched out the surveying lines?' what supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness have you ever commanded the morning to appear have you caused the dawn to rise in the east have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness have you explored the springs from which the seas come have you explored their depths do you know where the gates of death are located have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about what you know, Job. Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. (laughs) Now believe it or not, this is but a taste because God goes on for four chapters like this it feels relentless and if i had to sum up his message from these four chapters i gotta do it in two points this is what god communicates to job in 38 and 39 he reminds job compared to me remember this job compared to me humans know nothing of the unfathomable complexity of the universe that i design and i rule even to this moment Then second, he says, humans are both ignorant of and helpless before the evil forces that God has to contend with each and every day. And this, this is important for us to remember. Basically, the second one here, God says, there's such thing as spiritual warfare, Job, and it's happening right now, and you underestimate what's happening right now. Even the most spiritual among us today, like you got one of those spiritual charismatic friends who, like, sees a demon or an angel behind everything. God send the guardian angels, you know, whatever. I see dead people. Like, you got the, everybody's got a friend like that, right? I've got some, and it's even the most charismatic of them that see the spiritual warfare out there, even they underestimate what God is contending with, even in this moment. There is a Satan. He is uh, cunning and deceptive. He has a strategy to deceive and destroy every single last one of us. He's very good at it, and it's God alone. We are helpless before the Satan. It is God alone, the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're able to resist and overcome. This is what God reminds Job of in his moment of doubt. So uh, what's the question uh, or what's the answer here, Tyler? I do not I don't, I get to quite see that hand in the back. Go ahead. What's the answer? I just don't, I'm not really getting what God is saying to Job. Well, what God's saying to Job is that sometimes when you stop asking so many questions and just trust in God. God, explain yourself, we say sometimes. And God talks back and says, you couldn't fathom it if I did. Now that brings us to our first question from the, the question from, the question from the youths here there. This is actually question number eight of the series. One of the youths asked, uh, how do I know when uh, God is present in my life? If I can't feel him there. Fantastic question. And I would suggest to y'all read read Job because this is a great book. Like Job feels like God's indifferent towards him. Job feels like God's ignoring him. So again, what does God say back to Job? He says, okay, well, one, walk outside and smell the roses. Take a breath of of fresh air. Look around at this magnificent, wonderful, magnanimous, cosmic beauty that I have put before you and tell me if you don't see a designer and his presence behind it and even holding it together to this moment. Like if you really look around, how can you not see that God is there? in every moment... And then he says, also, look at all the good in your life. I am holding evil. Look at every good and perfect gift comes from me. It is a grace in your life. That breath you just breathed into your mouth, even that was a gift. You weren't guaranteed another. You didn't earn that one. Who knows how many more breaths you have? You could have a worse lot in life. You could not have those clothes on your back and that shelter over your head and those wonderful people in your life who love you. There are many people who haven't had that. There are many people today who don't have that. So remember these things. Remember that God is always there. Or this is tip number one for the deconstructors out there. This is what I would say to you. Sometimes when we puff our chest out and we say, where are you, God? God speaks back and he tells us, tells us to shrink, shrink in the bigness of me, shrink in the bigness of God. This is not always how he answers our doubt, but sometimes he does. And what I love about Job is, well, Job sees this as an opportunity for repentance. He renews his trust in God. He repents uh, before him. And God then canonizes his strange story as an example of faith. In the book of Job, we don't get an answer to the question of suffering, you know that, right? But what we do get is one answer in a bit of a snarky voice from from God, and that's this, trust me, that's the answer. Trust me, I hold all things together, including you. Now, that leads us to case study number two. Any questions on case study number one? Good, let's move on. Case study number two, John the baptizer. John the baptizer. Let's fast forward several hundred years into the New Testament, and we find ourselves in the life of, in my opinion, the master deconstructor, John the, John the Baptist. Did you know he was the master deconstructor? So if you read Luke 1 and you get a bit of John's backstory, um, you'll know that John was born into a priestly family. He had a priestly lineage. Zachariah, his dad, was, he worked in the temple. right? And yet, fast forward 30 years, and where do you find John the Baptist, not worshiping in the Jerusalem temple, not working in the Jerusalem temple. Rather, he's at the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness, starting a movement that will one day undermine completely the Jerusalem temple. You see how this works? He was not afraid to deconstruct his childhood faith, if you will. Now that's not what got him in trouble though. What got Job, or, uh, John the Baptist in trouble was, uh, was that he went political Isn't that what gets all the preachers in trouble today, right? He went political. He went political. He looked one of the local politicians right square in the eyes, and he told him that he was immoral. He called out his immoralities in front of everyone else, and guess what? The local politician didn't like it. So he threw John the Baptist into prison. Later, John the Baptist would be beheaded. But in that space in between the two, when he's in prison... John doubts pick up in Matthew chapter 11 verse 2 this is what he this is what he says when he doubts it says when John uh, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah he sent his disciples to ask Jesus are you the one who is to come or not should we expect someone else now we're not totally certain what has John shook what made him doubt, but I think the verse here implies two things. I've numbered them myself. Those are my numbers, uh, not the translations. Uh, First, he was in prison. He was in prison. And so he's like, okay, look, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, then why am I still in prison? (laughs) I've heard you preach some great sermons about breaking the chains of the captives and setting the prisoners free. Let's get to that part now. I'm like your cousin, I'm your hype man, I've prepared the way, said a lot of nice things about you. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, remember that one? Even gave you some of my disciples. So when are you gonna get me out of prison? It's not looking good over here. Now, second, second, if you go back, um, it says, second, when John heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that's his second, maybe perhaps the second point of doubt. When he heard about, uh, heard the, uh, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, then he sent his disciples to ask, her, Are you the one or not? So apparently, apparently Jesus' deeds weren't Messiah enough for John. John was like, You're messiahing wrong. I need you to messiah the right way. Look, I love the, I love the healing stuff. Jesus is great. You know, cl- cleanse the leper, give the blind their, their sight back. Awesome for PR. But, but this is not what we do. Like, the Messiah. When are you gonna get down to the judgment? I preached a lot about that, Jesus. When are you gonna get down to like the military political reform movement that all of us Jewish people are expecting? When are you going to start the real Messiah stuff? Because again, I'm in prison after all and I'd like to see it. Now to this doubt, Jesus talks back. Here's what he says to John. Verse four, it says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John's disciples say, look, John doesn't like your deeds, are you the one? And Jesus doubles down and says, look, at my deeds, <laughs> I'm the one. See, apparently, John, your messianic agenda doesn't match mine. I'm not the political military leader that you thought was coming. Instead, I'm the kind of Messiah who cleanses the leper. I'm the kind of Messiah who gives the hearing back, gives the, the legs back, gives the sight back to, to those who have not. I'm, I'm the kind of Messiah who preaches good news to the poor. I'm the kind of Messiah who defies your expectations. Will you trust me or will you not? In fact, he says, blessed, blessed are those who don't find me as a stumbling block. Now, uh. I love what happens next. John's disciples leave. They go back to report to John. And on their way out, Jesus then speaks extremely compassionately, sweetly about John. He tells the crowd, he's like, the guy they're going back to talk to, John the Baptist, you need to know he's the greatest of any human being born up to this point. Even though John's theology in this moment was a little bit off, So this brings us to big deconstruction tip number two. And I think we see this modeled in John. John is on what I would call, or what uh, A.J. Swoboda calls in his book, After Doubt, the theological journey, the theological journey. And I would tell you, for anybody in this room who's doubting, you need to humbly walk, humbly continue throughout your life on the theological journey. Tyler, what's the theological journey? Well, I wanna read to you a pretty long excerpt here from Swoboda's book, but it's so good. Every word of it, so hang with me. Swoboda says, the theological journey is our lifetime process. Wow, lifetime process of refining and ironing out our beliefs before God. Why? Well, because even our thinking demands sanctification. None of us comes fully equipped with a perfectly developed, nuanced, articulated vision of God. The process of forming right beliefs takes time. It's messy, often embarrassing, and demands humility, passion, and perseverance. I love the story of Karl Barth, the prolific theologian of the 20th century, famous for writing church dogmatics, which totals 12 million words. Wow. It's reported, Swoboda says, that he himself said he hadn't even read it all. Okay. (laughs) Now, despite the vastness of his writings, Barth believed he'd find all heaven's angels laughing at him one day. In heaven, he reflects, we shall know all that is necessary and we shall not have to write on paper or read anymore. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even church dogmatics over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. So goes on, he says, nobody, not even the greatest theologians can provide a finished theological product. There are always, quote, loose ends, to borrow from Eugene Peterson. Don't miss this. This is where it gets real good. He says, before heaven, every belief is preliminary. Nobody is permitted the whole picture beforehand. All earthly theology is essentially preparing for embarrassment. Heaven, as such, will be that eternal deconstruction where God undoes all the half-baked notions and half-truths and replaces them all with himself. Let it be so. Now, my question for you is this though. My question question is this. Do you believe that? Are you humbly on the theological journey? Can you even hold your beliefs with that sort of humility? Or do you think that one day God's gonna elect you to teach the theology classes in heaven? Hmm. N.T. Wright. perhaps the most accomplished New Testament scholar of our time uh, right now said this once. He said, I used to tell my students that at least 20% of what I was telling them was wrong, but I didn't know which 20% it was. (laughs) Now, I love that. And I'll go ahead and tell you, if N.T. Wright has 20% of it wrong, guess how much Tyler has wrong? (laughs) I'm gonna go at least 70%. But that's okay, because, you know, Three out of 10, I get you a job in Major League Baseball. I'm just saying, but the, here's, here's the point. This is the point. Even the greatest theologians, even the great prophet John the Baptist, even preachers and pastors, even you are on the theological journey. It's whether or not we have the humility to recognize that and wrestle through it. Case study number three, Nicodemus the Pharisee. So this is a pretty interesting old chap here. Um, so Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, But he was an elite one. He was a part of this elite Jewish tribunal called the Sanhedrin. You heard of it? They stood in judgment over matters relevant to Judaism. Um, And uh, unlike his peers, though, Nicodemus wasn't repulsed by Jesus. He was interested in him, attracted by him. Uh, We see once in John uh, chapter 3 where in the darkness of night, Nicodemus arranges a meeting. So none of his Pharisee buddies would know. He sneaks off in the night, arranges a meeting with Jesus, and uh, has an interesting conversation with him. Uh, John 3 verse 1, it says there was a man named Nicodemus, Jewish leader, Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God's with you. And Jesus replied, to tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, a quick pause here. You're already getting kind of a taste for the conversation, right? Nicodemus comes, seems like he's pretty open. He's honest. He's welcoming uh, Jesus to deconstruct him, if you will. And this guy was He was elite, like he had spent his entire life studying the Hebrew Scriptures. Everybody looked to him to interpret them. He was a part of the academy, the uh, religious aristocracy, if you will. Like, he was as elite as it gets, but he has the humility to talk with Jesus. Now, unfortunately, though, if you read John 3... What you see is that Jesus isn't nice with him either. Pretty nice to John the Baptist, not so much with, with Job or with Nicodemus. At one point, he looks at Nicodemus and he's like, oh, you're a teacher of Israel and you can't even understand this? Hmm, right? But eventually at the end of John three, he drops this epic statement on Nicodemus and you might recognize it. This sums up well his conversation with him. He says, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So here we have it again. We got a doubter, comes to God, looking for guidance and God talks back. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus here? He says, Nicodemus, you know a lot but believe in me. Trust in me Now I think Nicodemus gets the message Because if you read on in John His theological journey and its trajectory Goes in the right direction We see Nicodemus two more times Once in John 7 Where he actually defends Jesus in front of his peers um, Who are being kind of hostile towards uh, Jesus And then one in John 19 Where after Jesus' death He joins with Joseph of Arimathea To prepare his body for burial And to, to bury him Heading in the right direction we're not really sure what his, you know, how, he, how he ended up. Um, you know, I would like have, for Nicodemus to have a bit more courage sooner, right? But he's on his own pace. He's on his, theological, his own theological journey. Now, I think we learned something important from him, though. And this brings us to our deconstruction tip number three. I think we learned from Nicodemus what Scripture calls the ability to discern the false prophet or test the spirit or what I would call today exercising wise judgment. Again, Nicodemus is elite. He knows the scripture. And yet, he was willing to test Jesus and his character and teachings against the character and teachings of his peers. Who he'd grown up and worked around. And here's what he found. He found in Jesus, there was integrity and truth. And in his peers, there was deception, greed, a hunger for power and despotism. And so he leans into Jesus. I think, by the way, we need this, this ability to exercise wise judgment in this cultural moment maybe more than ever. In a day of like fake news and true news, and you can't tell the difference between the two. In a day where oftentimes our culture is calling things that are theologically orthodox and biblically true, wrong and shameful. Uh, In a day and age where conspiracies are endemic or every second 24-7 news is coming up with some other catastrophe and spinning it in the direction of whatever the political tastes are of its audience, we need this wisdom. We need this ability to discern. And it only comes from the Holy Spirit. But it is so important. Case study number four, Thomas the doubter. Gotta do Thomas if you're gonna talk about doubting, right? So Thomas the doubter. Now, we talked a little bit about him in the first week, uh, so let's just go back, quick recap. What I love about Thomas the doubter and his encounter with the risen Jesus is that even though Thomas doubts, Jesus does not shame him. If anybody should have believed Jesus' resurrection, by the way, it should have been Thomas. He was with Jesus for over three years. He saw Jesus, oh, I don't know, raise dead people. Like maybe that could have been a clue. Uh, also, he heard Jesus teach things like, I'm going to die and rise from the dead. Hmm. Another clue. Or maybe it could have been that Thomas, with the other disciples, I assume, saw the tomb empty and then heard all of his buddies telling him, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead. Thomas went somewhere, I don't know, but he missed it. He's like, I'm gonna go to the grocery store, I gotta use the bathroom, I don't know. He walked out of the room, though, and when he came back, all of his buddies were like... <gasps> Okay, and, and he, they, he, okay, so let's pick it up. John 20, verse 24. Um, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. <sighs> Poor guy. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers in them. Place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with him. The doors were locked. Suddenly, as before, Jesus, risen Jesus standing among them. And check this out. This is not a word of shame. This is not vindictive. Rather, this is a word of peace and a merciful invitation. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord, my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, You believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, interesting little detail that you might not pick up there. Thomas says, I will only believe if what? I touch the wounds. Jesus shows up and says, touch the wounds. And what does Thomas do? Doesn't say he touches the wounds. I imagine he hits his knees and he says, my Lord, my God. Apparently the risen Jesus was all he needed. And he never looks back from that moment. In fact, if uh, the historical accounts are true, he goes off and becomes a great missionary to, to India, does many great works for the Lord there, and is eventually so courageous and convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that he's martyred for the faith. The resurrection changed everything for him. And I believe this is true. A sure belief in the resurrection can change everything for you. In my humble opinion, this is the one singular thing that has saved and strengthened my faith time and time again. Here's tip number four to you today. I would encourage you, if you're a doubter or a deconstructor, you need to start with the resurrection. If you got questions, start with this question because if you can wrap your mind around the historical credibility that jesus rose from the dead then it's going to be a whole lot easier to put your arms around the supernatural stuff because after all jesus rose from the dead and it's also going to be a whole lot easier to swallow some of the hard and offensive stuff about christianity because after all jesus rose from the dead Uh, in my opinion I'm going to show you these two books Uh, this book saved my faith probably about 12 years ago Uh, this book is called The Resurrection of the Son of God it's by N.T. Wright mentioned him earlier and nerds even beware okay because this is like an 800 plus page tome but I think it's the best collection of evidence for the historical event that Jesus rose from the dead convince me Now, for those of you who are not nerds, this is uh, the sort of abridged pastoral popular version. It's still a little bit dense. It's called Surprised by Hope, also by N.T. Wright. Um, In it, he gives some of the evidence for resurrection that I talked about there in this book right here. And he also just kind of riffs on resurrection and hope and why that's important for the Christian. I think it would be valuable for you. This brings us to question from the youth's number nine. I heard this from probably like three or four of y'all. So this is, Ted, this is an important one. Um, three or four times we're asked, I doubt some of the miracles in scripture. They seem a bit much for me. I get that. Some of them are a bit extra. You're like, really? How, what's going on there, all right? Again, if you're gonna investigate the miracles though, my advice to you would be start with the most miraculous miracle of them all. Start with the resurrection. And again, if you can wrap your mind around that historical event, then it makes the rest of the miracles a whole lot easier. Wrap your arms around and, and if you can't Well you waste yourself or, or you just saved yourself From wasting a lot of time Right Because you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead Well I'm not sure You're a Christian After all Now I heard uh, One pastor say it like this Once I thought it was so good He said uh, Whenever somebody Comes up to me And says You know pastor I just don't think I can believe in Christianity Because I find this one thing About it offensive He said I always uh, say this to him I say okay well That's hard. That issue you're struggling with is hard. But does that thing being offensive mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Just because you find this issue offensive, does that necessitate the fact that Jesus didn't come back from the dead? Which of course there, he says, they're always like, well, no, the two aren't necessarily connected, right? It's a non sequitur, one doesn't lead to the other. And he says always, exactly, exactly. So first, we should perhaps figure out this whole resurrection from the dead thing. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, maybe we should be worried about offending him rather than he offending us. Think about the Apostle Paul here. If anybody was offended by Christianity, it was him. He launched a terror campaign against Christians. And yet he encountered the uh, risen Jesus, then went and spent three years in the desert, deconstructed everything he thought he knew as a Pharisee and reconstructed it around a risen Lord. Now that brings us to our last case study, and it's Paul. He needs no introduction. After his Damascus conversion, after many years of ministry, Paul tells us that he had an incredible struggle. 2 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Now we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. Some scholars say it was a temptation. Some say it was a, an illness of, of some sort. We don't know. What we do know is that Paul hated it though. He hated it. He called it a tormentor from Satan. 2 Corinthians twelve eight, three times. He says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Three times. These are three seasons of prayer. And it had to be disorienting for Paul because there were times in his life that he was able to heal others, but now all of a sudden he can't heal himself. Yet just because the healing did not come doesn't mean God wasn't there. Back to the verse, verse nine. It says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away, but each time this is what he said to me. My grace is all you need. My power is all works best in weakness. Or translation, your body and your mind may weaken. Your strength and your energy may fail. Your emotions may worsen. Your faith may become uncertain, but even those moments, God says, even then have no fear, my grace will be enough. And my power actually work better through you at that precise moment of weakness. Hmm. All right, let's, uh, let's summarize. Five case studies. Five doubters. Prolific biblical characters. They all talk to God and God talks back. What does he say? Well, we see that... God doesn't always use the same tone. Not always nice. Not always, you know, mean either. Kind of sometimes sweet, sometimes direct. We see that oftentimes he doesn't answer the questions that they ask. In fact, oftentimes he gives answers that they don't want or don't expect. But there is a theme in all five. Did you catch the theme? It's actually pretty simple. This is God's direction, not mine. This is the theme. When God speaks... Here's what we see. We see that he always summons us deeper into him. When God speaks to the doubter, what do we see? We see him always calling us to trust in him. That brings us to our last question, youths. Somebody asked, uh, how do you know God's voice over your own? (laughs) It's a great question, and, and here's how. When God speaks, he summons you out of yourself and into him. And if the little voice in your head or the little voice in your heart is summoning you anywhere else, you can just about guarantee that that's not God. But if it's pointing you into trust in him, if it's guiding you on the way of Jesus, then listen and run in that direction. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you The voices of our culture today will do everything they possibly can to make sure you end up anywhere but the hands of Jesus. If you, on the spectrum of faith, look at kind of the right and the left on one side, you have faith communities that tell you to suppress doubt, to demonize deconstruction. Uh, They tell you that you better stay off the slippery slope and you better be really, really careful. They deny the validity that doubt and deconstruction can actually be a path towards intimacy with God. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have faith communities that, uh, that tell you to, to romanticize doubt. They demonize orthodoxy. They demonize scripture. They demonize tradition. And they only legitimate your deconstruction experience if in the end it ends with you deconverting or demolishing that faith community that you came out from. You have to join the angry, snarky chorus on Twitter that attacks, attacks all those people who did so much harm to me. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, Jesus summons us to neither of those ends. He doesn't summon us to the right, he doesn't summon us to the left, he summons us, invites us in to him. So I don't know who you need to hear from today, the God of Job, the God of John, the God of Nicodemus, but let me just remind you. Hey Job, I hold the world together and am battling in the spiritual realm for you, trust me. God says hey John it may not be what you expected but this is the cross-shaped agenda of the Messiah trust me God said Nicodemus you sure know a lot man but whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life trust me God says Thomas I defeated death trust me God says Paul my grace will be sufficient in your time of great weakness the thorn stays but trust me God says trust me Hey, look, God wants your honest doubt. God wants you to be intellectually curious. And I also believe that God wants to give you answers. I do believe that. Sometimes the answers don't come how we want or when we want them. Sometimes we've got to work for them. Sometimes we've got to wait on them. But more than anything else, you know what he wants? He wants you to have him. So that's the invitation of today. I love John chapter six, verse 66. I'll read this and then we will partake of communion together before we leave. He said, at this point, Jesus had just taught a really hard teaching. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12, and he asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe, and we know you are the Holy One. Amen. Let our faith be that of Peter's.